Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Fat Phil Cooper, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast. I'm your host and managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. As always, thanks for joining us, downloading, streaming, however it is you listen to your podcasts. And for those who are listening for the first time and don't know who we are or what we stand for, we at House Culture are a group, a gang, a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. You can follow us day to day on our Instagram feed at housecultureNet. But what we do with this podcast is sit down with some of the most iconic characters from the scene for a candid chat to discover how they fell in love with the music and how it has shaped their life. In this episode, we chat with Fat Phil Cooper, a true musical nomad who has done it all. From putting on his own parties, owning his own record shop, being a resident DJ at a super club, running his own record labels, as well as traveling the world, spreading the gospel of good house music. As you'll hear in this podcast, we learn about his first visit to Manchester's Hacienda. I walked into Acid House, I've never heard it. And I'm wandering around with my big Morrissey quiff and my national health specs and gladiolas stuck out my back pocket. And it's just house music. How he made his DJ residency at Super Club Cream a reality. I became this diehard, going every weekend, taking mixtapes. As soon as I got there, where's Darren? There's a new mixtape. And he said, right, I want you to play. His passion for travel that leads him to play in places like Bali. My first year there, I was literally some days, three gigs a day. I was just literally on a scooter, razzing around the island playing because I wanted to understand what the island was about. And also why this scene is so important to him. You know, music is 
that's going to sound corny, but it has been my life. You know, it's it's taken me to wonderful places. It's helped me in some quite dark times. It's just been there for forever, you know, and, and I think music can take you on amazing journeys. As we caught up with Phil in the few spare moments he had between gigs, he was the first one to admit that his brain was a bit fried for this. So any names that slip his mind will be qualified in the further reading section at the end of this episode. But for now, I hope you enjoy our one-to-one with Fat Phil Cooper. House Culture. Okay, well, hi, Phil. Hello, Matt. <laughs> uh, thanks for sitting down with us. Uh, amongst, I know you've got a very, very busy schedule. Um, I know that you're on your way to a festival tomorrow, Stand and Calling. Sorry, yeah, Sunday I'm playing. Sunday. Sunday, Stand and Tomorrow I'm playing in the Dartmouth Arms, which is a pub uh, North London. Okay. And they've they've kind of invested in a nice audiophile set up. Um, so it's very much food, uh, drink and that whole, you know, grown-up raver type thing, which we touched on just before the, the mic switched on. Excellent. Um, and you're going back to Ibiza soon as well? Yeah, so I, I after stand and calling, I go back for a day um, just to, <laughs> to change uh, attire. I've got a wedding, basically, a family wedding. My girlfriend's brother's marrying a Polish girl. And then I'm playing in Poland on Sunday along the river there. I don't know much details of the gig, unfortunately. It's just something that's happened last minute, but apparently it's a beautiful outdoor venue, you know, very Balearic vibes. So I'm looking forward to that. Okay, great. Um, and then after that, yes, back to, back to Ibiza. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, in amongst all of those gigs, you're, you're well known for like a, you've got a voracious, insatiable appetite for music, playing all different genres. Um, yeah. What we want to kind of do is discover, I suppose, from the beginning, How? where did you discover that appetite for music? Yeah. Good question. Um, my, it certainly wasn't from my parents. I mean, well, I say that. My, my dad was a country and western fan and my mum was a huge, like, Scylla Black fan. I think earliest memories were around the time of Star Wars, buying the, the album, which was com- it was put together. It was John, what's his name? The Williams. Comp- John Williams, yes. And, and you know, because we had a family turntable. Um, but as I got older, I guess into my teens, it was John Peel, really. I was living in North Wales, um, and I always say it was very monochrome. A couple of things happened in my life that flipped that. Firstly, getting into listening to John Peel and, you know, every night just tuned into you know, his amazing show. And then an artist, a graffiti artist from Australia moved into North Wales, a, a guy called Stormboy, who now de- he now works under the name of Stormy. And he was a few years older, but he had a love of hip hop. His, his younger brother was in my year in school. So as you can imagine, older brothers filter down to younger brothers. So this guy was introducing me to, you know, the Subway Art and Streetway Art books, which were written by Henry Schulfont and Martha Cooper. And then from that, we would listen to tapes, mixed tapes. So I got a love of early hip-hop, I guess, and that hip-hop culture. And what and year was that? That cranky, 84, 85, maybe. I was still in school. I left at 86, 87. I can't even remember. Yeah, when I was about 13, 14, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. And then that went on, and, and Storm Boy, Stormy now, teamed up with another guy called Jason McPhee, who lived at the end of my ro- road, another older guy. And they, they ended up doing artwork for artists like Unique 3, um, the theme was the graffiti art cover that was written by these two guys. So that was many years later. But, you know, through my love of hip hop and listening to John Peel, I was exposed to kind of an eclectic mix, mix not necessarily house music back then. Yeah. That came a bit later. I used to write for a fanzine called Smith's Indeed, just just guest letters um, when I was still in school. And they had a huge conference in Oxford Road Student Union in Manchester, which is opposite the Holy Name Church. And if you know the Smith's lyrics, that's quite a... Mm-hmm. 
uh, a poignant place for Morrissey. Um, and from there, I had to go to the Hacienda to interview Mike Joyce and Andy Rourke in the Gay Trader Bar, and that would have been 80, 88 or 89. And I walked into Acid House. I'd never heard it. And I'm wandering around with my big Morrissey quiff and my national health specs and gladiolas stuck out my back pocket. And it's just house music. As mixed in with a lot of other stuff, they knew there was a lot of Smiths fans in town. So the DJ at the time, I don't even know who it was, it might have been Graham Park or Mike, uh, were dropping in Elvis tracks and all sorts of amazing things, yeah. yeah. And that was, um, yeah, that's how I got my first kind of taste of house music, really. Wow, it's just, the specs came off and the quiff got changed very quickly. Yeah, it pretty much. I mean, I was still so continuing that story. I used to, I used to travel when I had the money up from North Wales to Manchester to underground records, spinning various shops and picking up hip-hop records or indie records. You know, I was into bands like The Wedding Present, The Pixies, Throwing Muses. And I remember going into, I think it was Spinning. And anyway, my, the, the guy was like, Phil, here's some amazing new US imports of hip-hop. I was like, no, no, I want some of that Hacienda music. And then I got a very, I think a much smaller pile of early Chicago house, I'm guessing, yeah. Um, and, that, and that was it. I started buying bits and pieces then. Wow, so you're already buying records before kind of... Yeah, yeah, I was always, you know, I'd say I, all my friends were saving their pocket money and buying cigarettes and I was saving up to buy seven-inch singles. So I was always collecting, yeah, records, especially through, you know, from the age, I guess, as soon as I got to secondary school when I had a bit more freedom, there was a little local record shop in Colwyn Bay and I would like, you know, at lunchtime go down there with my small amount of change and, and buy singles, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, do, was it a point then you were like, okay, well, Acid House, this is it now. I'm going to just buy this genre or was it? No, was it I mean, genre? I always carried on digging uh, eclectic music because, um, you know, though I was buying that music, I wasn't actually DJing at, at anywhere then. Um, it was it was years later when friends were studying in Manchester and I, you know, obviously they knew I had a big record collection. I already bought some Cytronic crap decks, basically. And one of the lads was like, we're going to do a... a, a they were in halls of residence. We can do a party, come and play. So another friend, you know, I loaded up. I had a really basic set of speakers, turntables, went crates of records and played. And then some sharp character there was like, "Well, let's do this in a, one of the pubs." I think it was Fritzby's Wallet or Rubinsky's, again in Fallowfield. And then I ended up playing for those guys, and um, you know, but I was playing everything, you know. Uh, hip hop at that time it was like mixture of hip hop and indie and the occasional bit of acid house. Yeah, and then I suppose it was kind of like hip house was trying to be a thing. <laughs> yeah. and, <laughs> and then from obviously from all that, you know, as I've grown older, my taste like most people, you know, you, you want to discover the roots, you know. So yeah. from house, I dug right back through to disco. Yeah, and I, I probably collected more disco than house for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the for me the best thing about kind of house music and hip hop as well is that. You love these tunes and you grow up with them, and then there's that sudden light bulb moment where you discover actually that's a sample from yes, you know that jazz record or yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. or you hear something on the radio and it stands out so much just that little phrase from the track yes I love those moments yeah yeah for yeah. sure I mean the mu- you know music is it doesn't want to sound corny but it has been my life you know it's it's taken me to wonderful places it's helped me in some quite dark times um, it, it's just been there for forever you know and. And I think music can take you on amazing journeys, you know, and especially as a digger, you know, you you start studying the sleeve notes and you find out there's a drummer on there and then you, you go off and find out all the stuff he's drummed on and then you might find there was an amazing sax player on those albums and then you follow all that. And it's just, it's frustrating sometimes because I know I'm never ever going to listen and consume 
all that. I mean, it's like when you line your back and look at the stars and go into that deep moment. Wow, man, this is cosmic. You know, we can never comprehend. And it's the same with music. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing, but frustrating at the same time. Well, that, that sense of discovery as well, like you say, through the sleeve notes. And, yeah. and um, do you think that's something that's kind of been lost in the, in sure. the digital world? Yeah. I mean, especially, I mean, Spotify. I love Spotify because I get to learn, I get to listen to lots of great music. But, you know, this I'm probably in a small minority now. How many people have to spend time reading that? Probably hardly any, probably 0.0%, you know, or 1% of that. But I do feel there's a, you know, there's a there's a gap in the market for, for that, you know, maybe a plug-in for Spotify. Because most labels, and you know, me being one, I have one, we write extensive sleeve notes, you know. I'm not sure most of the dance music guys do, but I know, you know, through New Northern Soul, I work with a guy called Mark Rowlands, who used to write for The Guardian. He used to do all the, the writing work for the Southport Soul Weekenders. He now lives over in uh, Croatia. So Mark does a lot of written work for me. Um, I work with Matt Anis. He's a writer for various publications, DJ Mag, I think being one, but he also writes his own books. He does a lot of sleeve note stuff for me. And it, it gets sent out to DJs. I'm sure some of them read them, some of them don't, but it would be nice if that could also be, you know, because I love when I go on Spotify and listen to music, but I'd love to read and find out. So what I end up doing is going onto alt- other sites. Mm-hmm. So I think Spotify are missing a trick. You know, if they yeah. can keep you on their platform. <clears throat> In terms of going back to you becoming a DJ, um, you know, it's kind of hip hop and early early house music, and you know, what were those early gigs like for you? It was never a contrived move. I left school and became a sign writer, and I was at that crossover period where it was going from brushes to computer. So I, I learned the basic grounding, the traditional art, and then I took over on the computer thing. So DJ for me was just, it, you know, I never even contemplated it as being a full time job. It was just a hobby. Um, and the gigs were, f- you know, friends in university, the odd free party, the odd party we'd put on. So sort of early 90s, I started working in the evenings as a glass collector in a in a very ritzy nightclub in North Wales. And then, you know, because it was a way of being in a club, because at this time as well, there was no kind or as far as I was aware, there wasn't really an underground scene that I could find. So I just had to go and, and the DJ Pat, who was a, one of those zany mic things, couldn't mix for toffee, would allow me, because I'd get a break for half an hour every night when I was working there, he would allow me to bring some vinyl in and do like the half an hour dance section. And from that, the manager was like, well, why don't we try a Wednesday night? You promote it, we'll do a deal. And and very quickly we found there was the need for, you know, we put it on on a Wednesday and the deal was if we got 300 people in, we kept all the door money. If we didn't get 300 people and we paid a pound per person under and we did 500 people on the first one you know we were charging like three quid in and so suddenly I'm earning more putting a party on than I am on a full-time job so for a few years I was promoting around North Wales with friends and still doing the day job and then the kind of day job I got sacked basically Um, and I understand why but but the you know I ended up, my parents behind my back got a slitter involved and they ended up paying me some money because they'd actually unfairly dismissed me. But in hindsight, yeah, they were probably right to get rid of me. You know, so I was, you know, I was clubbing most nights, you know, going up at weekends in Manchester, coming back, you know, not in the best states, um, putting my own parties on. And, and that was it, you know, and that kind of then thrust me into, well, you know, you've, you've got to make a living out of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it was going off and doing fun pubs I did anything and everything in the early years yeah yeah, yeah. 
So you were going out in Manchester at the time as well, you mentioned. Where, yeah, Hacienda. Yeah, Hacienda. Hacienda, PSV, more, more so was the PSV, which, PSV, which was the Caribbean club, which is the first factory run. So Tony Wilson used to run band nights there many years ago and put people like Joy Division on. And it was the Caribbean club in Hume and it was two floors. And downstairs it was the house and it was Derek C, Mike Smoke and DJ H. DJ H was a guy called Howard Carney, whose family had moved from Manchester to where I lived. So this was another kind of connection. And then he he was still very in touch with what was going on in Manchester. So he was kind of responsible for bringing the Acid Smiley t-shirts down to, as I say, our little monochrome town. Mm. And again, he was older than me, but he was DJing. And as I say, once I'd got of age, I could, you know, I could get in these clubs properly. We were, we were going up to the PSV more than the Hacienda. And then upstairs was the reggae and soul room. And they used to have um, a kitchen up there. So they would do food. So it was kind of this very weird mashup of very white student kids on E downstairs. And then you'd go upstairs and it'd be the older Jamaican Caribbean crew eating uh, rice and pea, listening to reggae. Yeah. And, and I, because I loved eclectic music, I would often get myself in a bit of a state and go up there to chill. And I remember one time going up the stairs, a bit wide-eyed, knocking into possibly the biggest man I've ever seen with his leather tracksuit on, covered in gold, clutching his little bottle of champagne, and it went all over him. And I thought, oh God, this is it, I'm going to get pasted. And he went, you owe me a drink. So we went up to the upstairs bar. I bought my drink, literally spent all my money on, on this little bottle of champagne. And he then proceeded to introduce me to his sisters, his cousins, his aunties, and I hung out with them. And then, so when I used to go back to Manchester, I would often go to that room, you know, I'd flip between the two because I was listening to different sounds up there. And it was just fed that, you know, though I did love acid house and house music, I still needed a fix of different things. And I thought it complemented each other well. You know, yeah. if you wanted a breather, you went up there, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that was um, interesting times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you looking at yourself as a DJ, you've, the, what's happened with your job has happened with your job. You're, you've decided to become a full-time DJ. What was the moment where you were like, well, it's probably like an oh shit moment. Okay, I've got to make this work. Um, was, what was the next moment in terms of, wow, this is really happening now? Was there like a big break? Yeah, for sure. So I'm in the early 90s, two northeastern lads who'd studied in Liverpool came to Chester and opened Global Grooves Records. And so I would travel. So instead of having to go to Manchester, this would have been 91, 92. I would go up there and buy records. And they, and I was promoting down in North Wales. They, they obviously ran a shop. They were promoting in Chester. They asked me to get involved playing records initially. And then I became their kind of Saturday boy. And just as they were doing their parties, early cream was, was happening. And Darren Hughes, who's from Chester, came over to one of the parties the boys were doing that I was playing at. And he basically, we took my number. And we sat, you know, and as Cream was going, he would look after us. We got like the Cream VIP. He gave a lot of these like laminated passes out so we could go for free. And I became this diehard going every weekend, giving, taking mixtapes. As soon as I got there, where's Darren? There's your new mixtape. And eventually he was just like, right. I, at this time, my musical leanings were more masters at work, soulful house. Mm-hmm. And he said, right, I want you to play. Oh, great, you know, when am I playing? Two weeks' time. Oh, right, that's when you've got, I think it was Morales, Frankie and Morales, it was the death mixing. No, no, you're not playing in that room. You're going to warm up for Andy Weatherall. What? <laughs> what? You know, that's not what, you know. No, you're going to warm up for Andy Weatherall. So I had to go, and go literally through my collection of records and find all those tougher 
you know, records that were going to work in the annex. Yeah, and yeah. I went in and played, and uh, yeah, it was, it, it smashed it. I mean, Andy had come in, he's, and he's, I've never seen you, who are you? And so I'm at Phil Cooper, it's my first gig. Oh, like, you know, this is when the club finished at two. He's playing 12 till two. And he's just said, look, play an extra half an hour of my time. Wow. And it was, wow. And I dropped um, Expansions, Elevation, was my last track. And the, the whole room just went up. And I was on a little riser, and he was sat behind me, lower down on like a little stage thing and I literally didn't and I stumbled backwards and landed on his lap and he kind of reached around and clapped he went a tad cheesy old boy but it works so Darren you know was like right next week you're going to play before Laurent Garnier in here and I'm like you know suddenly I'd gone from this very soulful US sound which I loved to play in a very much more tribal and I had that music but I didn't realise it was the B-sides it was the dubs it was the red zone mixes it was you know and obviously I was involved in Global Groove so I was getting those records and yeah and it was just like you know I was kind of quite blinkered with house music though I loved lots of different genres of music but this kind of thrust me into a different trajectory yeah yes amazing yeah it was a baptism of fire and that was so that kind of happened that would have been I don't know so that would have been maybe 94 95 maybe 95 and then 96 they obviously sent me to Ibiza so but that you know starting to play for cream was definitely because as soon as my name was on that flyer yeah. I'd be sending mixtapes in envelopes with with that flyer all around the world no, none of this EPK electronic press kit stuff it was done with you know bags full of envelopes trotting to post offices and and then I would sort my own tours out, you know, so I, you know, I'd go to South Africa, I'd go to Australia, and yeah. Well, yeah, the only person that really going to make it happen is yourself. Of course, way. yeah, yeah, because yeah. at that time there was no, you know, I, I don't even, I, perhaps there were DJs being managed and stuff, I'm sure they were, but it was very much, you know, you did it yourself and it was, you know, you'd, people would invite you to play, you'd swap, and I didn't have, though I was doing small parties, they weren't big enough well, again, I just didn't think, you know, you know, why why don't I go and speak to so-and-so and invite them to play my club? We just we were doing these little parties in North Wales initially just for ourselves. And then as those got bigger, we did start inviting guests. You know, I think one of the big parties I was involved with was K-Class, Baseheads, Prodigy Live, Carl Cox DJing. And it was a Boxing Day party in Tawin in North Wales. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, so, like you said, you, okay... First gig, warming up for Andy Weatherall, um, a cream. Set next time, Laurent Garnier. Yeah. What were what were the moments where, obviously, it was like, okay, I can kind of do this. But what was the most terrifying person to kind of be have your name in front of in terms of the running order? In that, in that era, would you say? Or someone that you massively respected and looked up to? And I, I, Do you know what? And that's, this isn't me sounding big-headed. I never, ever... I've never felt like that. I've always, you know... I've, Okay, yes, there has been. So Roger Sanchez, you know, Roger was the ultimate DJ for me. I was never scared to play, but I always would be like, no matter how hard I play here and how amazing, I'm never going to be Roger. So we toured, so we were, eventually I got Cream set up a management agency and they brought a lot of DJs on board. And so obviously lots of us residents were on that and, and people like Roger were on there. And so when Roger would come to Europe, for a while I was his tour DJ. So when we went on those Cream gigs, it was me and Roger. And I remember one particular gig in Earth in Derry, and I'd played what I would consider my my perfect warm up, you know. And at this time, I would do three decks, and it was all vinyl, and you know, and I'd be playing, and it was going. And I remember Roger just because he was literally coming on, he stepped on the stage, and it just went up a level. And he could, and at my not, I wasn't disappointed, but he could sense, you know, 
And he came over and we always had this little handover and he's just like, you know, and he'd see me just, I'd go off to the side stage and just watch and study, you know. And we used to finish the gig and we'd go back to the hotels and we had this ritual where, because none of us smoked and those days everybody smoked and, mm. you know, we'd go to our respective rooms, get rid of all that stinky clothes, black bin bag them up because if you're travelling, that's going to stink the rest of your clothes out. Shower, come down, maybe have something to eat or just have a chat or whatever. And, um, you know, he could see my frustration and I was like, you know, he said, look, you are the perfect person for this. You know, you wouldn't be on this tour, you know. And he just had that. And I, you know, and I always say I don't think I'd ever. There's, there's those DJs, good DJs, and then there's superstars. And he's definitely a superstar. He just has something about him that is next level. Mm. You know, and I saw him at the weekend at the Cream Classics events. He was playing before the big, the classical thing. And yeah, three decks, four decks. He still got it. Yeah, he still got it. He definitely. still got it, yeah. yeah. Um, and... Although musically now, I probably wouldn't, I'm not into what he does musically. Technically, he's still up the ultimate for me. Yeah, yeah. virtuoso. Yes. What he can kind of yeah, do. so go back to that original point. That was probably the only one, but it was never a, a fear. It was just like, you know, I was always excited and loved it and would never miss that opportunity. But there was always that, jam, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to be that, that good. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It's a very, very important job in terms of like setting that vibe and the yeah. expectation of the crowd of what's coming and really like judging it perfectly. It's very, very difficult to do. Um, obviously, when you said about um, Andy Weatherall and Laurent Garnier, you kind of had to dig through your collection. And, yeah. and how would you go about putting together kind of that? Would you look at that DJ and be like, well, I know I've got to get to this point for them? Or would you just kind of wing it for yourself? Mm, I've never been, you know... There's a lot of talk of DJs who have a plan set. I've never done, I've just always bought music. I've always had a few things that work, you know, those little link mixes, but I've always kind of just played on the fly. But I'm aware that, you know, there's no point in me taking it to, you know, force factor 10, because that, you know, you've got to give them room to, to go. I don't know, I, I've always been a fan of a longer set and I like going on at the start of the night. I think, you know, it gives you time to, warm up yourself yeah. you know and 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 uh, hence i love those long sets when i can play five six seven eight hours um but with regards to warming up for djs i've always had my style and i and i would to, you know i would pull it back as a warm-up set you know because obviously i can go and do a, a a big room set as it were or a, a main room set a main set but no i you know, I, d I didn't think, right, I've got to play that particular style for them. I think they are comfortable enough to know if the warm-up's right, they can they can do their thing, you know. Yeah, yeah I've never, I've never really done... With Roger, obviously, because we were doing a lot of gigs together, I knew his big records, so I would kind of not play those. And I would tend to play a lot of the B-sides and the dubs. If, if I was going to play something similar or a record that he was going to play, I would just play the instrumental, the dub early on. Yeah. And, I, and one thing I did learn off Roger, actually, was... Um, because on these tours, we would be playing small clubs for 200 people in little basements and real underground. Or we might be playing big clubs like Earth and Derry, which are big, you know, big capacity. And he would play not the same set, but the same kind of style. But one thing he, he did do, which I kind of still do, if we were playing the deeper sets, he would play the full length tracks and he would play it quite, he wouldn't pitch it up. He'd leave it at its natural speed. He'd let the track breathe. But as soon as we got to those bigger clubs, he would be in his fast mix and he would be in the key energy elements of those tracks quite fast you know doubling up on copies you know and that's one thing that I've, I've you know I've kind of still kept up you know if I have to play an energy set I know how to do that you know go go to the the killer part of that track shorter mixes but faster mixes you know yeah, yeah. and they, yeah that's something I learned off Roger 
Yeah. Amazing. You mentioned, so obviously you're fully in with the Cream family and uh, they had a long association with Amnesia in Ibiza. Yes, yeah. Um, what was your first experience of, one, that as a club um, with Cream, and I suppose, two, your first just experience of Ibiza as a punter or a DJ? So, 96, I went, I didn't do, I don't think I did the full season in 96, I think I did about six weeks. So that was the first time I went and it was the time when kind of Sneak was, I mean, Sneak had been around a while, but he was kind of, you know, getting big. So he was being brought over to play. He did that remix for Samba Magic for Basement Jacks. So I remember playing that. I was playing it on the, in the main room on, because Virgin at the time, you know, knew that I was playing that kind of stuff. So they would send me slates, acetates. And I remember very. I remember him coming in with his big boxes of records, you know, being walked through the club, and he kind of stopped and he dropped, put his stuff down, and he looked up because I was playing his track, and he was just like, you know, and we became what a place to hear it, <laughs> yeah. And we became, you know, th- that summer and beyond, we became really good friends. We've not spoken for a good while. I mean, you know, sneaks, sneaks doing his thing, and he kind of, he took, he kind of launched an attack on Liverpool. And some, some good friends of mine, promoters, for whatever reason, you know, I mean, there's a lot to be said about Sneak portraying this, this, this gangster character and this godfather, and it's worked for him, right? He's getting a lot of gigs. and But I actually PM'd him, and I was like, I'm quite disappointed, um, you know, and we've never really spoke since. I mean, I'm not to say I wouldn't, you know, um, but yeah, we, you know, we spent a couple of summers hanging out. But yeah, the whole, the whole experience of amnesia, because I've been going before to play and to actually see the the operation, you know, because you get access to the to the whole club. So it, it's it's kind of mad to see how something runs like that. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, it was good. And it, that was a good family vibe because you get to know all the staff and there's all those multitudes of little bars and, you know, you get those little rituals where you turn up to play, you go off and see so-and-so at such and such a bar and there's a little, you have a quick Gepito with pretty much everybody. By the time you got on the decks, you're hammered. Yeah, it was good. I mean, it was amazing. And, you know, the Cream gave us a villa. It was a very young team. So we were all suddenly living in, you know, it wasn't the best of villas, but it was a villa with a pool and we were DJing and I was living with the promotion team and it was was great days, you know, really good. Would I go back to it now though? Probably not. (laughs) It was crazy. You know, we we, were literally out all the time, you know, and then I was also flying over to Mallorca to do the Cream Nights at BCM. Um, Yeah, it was amazing time. But, you know, I'm 48 now. Uh, yeah, I couldn't do that anymore. Keep the pace down. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So how is that? So obviously, apart from age, how has the island changed since you've kind of seen that in your opinion? I mean, though I'm living the there. better or worse um, as well? I mean, I love living there. It's, you know, it, it is very successful at what it does. I haven't been to any. I went to Pasha the other week because I had some friends over. There's nothing that would attract me. I mean, Pikes, yes, because obviously what Harvey does there, they've booked Huni. There used to be more of that. There used to be more people, promoters taking risks. And I think it goes through cycles. I think we're going to see over the next years more risks being taken, more more DJs coming over, like your Deck Mental guys. I'd love to see those those guys take over a smaller room at one of the big clubs. Um, but that, obviously you've got Croatia now. So people aren't going to come to Ibiza and spend a fortune when they can go to Croatia for super cheap dance the same DJs under the stars it's a it's a lot more it's an easier place to party I think now Croatia but I love living in Ibiza the lifestyle's amazing you know I'm fortunate enough that I play La Tour and from you know that's almost it really helps my gigs elsewhere because I've got New Northern Soul which is classed as a Balearic label I guess Um, I'm playing the most amazing sunset spot I would say in the world I've done a few good ones you know Bali 
you know, I've traveled the world looking for that ultimate sunset, but I have to say that the tour sunset is incredible. And with technology now, you know, I don't have to go to the post office with a mixed cassette and a load of flyers. I just literally live stream, put a few pictures up and it's, you know, it's good. And it is great. So I do a couple of times a month there. I do the odd gig at Pikes. Uh, I played for Nightmares on Wax this year, which was brilliant. And I'm kind of just, this is my first year of living here. I'm, I did a couple of gigs in the winter at a place called Malanga, which is um, a small cafe bar, but over the weekend stays open till 6am. But it's lots of music heads. And I went there and played from 10 till 6 on my own all night, all African music. No house, just African-inspired music. And it was incredible. Yeah. And there was a lot of older heads, music heads out there. And, and the, a few of them said, we just don't hear this anymore. Yeah. So my plan when I get back is to look at setting up something through the winter, do my own parties there. There's a good few music heads I've met. A young guy called Saeed, who's London, but his family are Jordanian, I think. Um, and he was at that gig and he just literally stood most of the night by the decks, just watching and commenting and talking about music, which was nice. Um, and he you know before I came away I was like look let's meet when I get back so I'm going to I'm going to speak to him and maybe we'll look at doing something because yeah. there's a def definite need and there's a lot of music heads there and hopefully you know we build something through the winter somebody might think oh this is good let's try that in the small room at the club or or if not we can tour that out elsewhere you know yeah. Yeah, I think the time is right for it as well. We spoke to on this podcast to Sally Rogers from Amanda Yeah, Adam. lovely she Sally. Was, yeah, she said exactly friend. the same thing as yes. well. And yeah. had great thing to say about obviously Latore and yeah. just kind of about how it's, you know, it's maybe it's gone to, the super clubs are there and they're kind of not going to go away. But, you know, there is a market and a, yeah. and a gap where there's this more esoteric stuff that yes. can, smaller things that can... Yeah, the problem, well, not, it's not a problem, it's, you know, it's just supply and demand. Mm. Everybody is a DJ, right? You know, and so I, I was getting offers. Can you come and play for us? Okay, what's the deal? Oh, it's food and beverage. And you're like, sorry, you know, I, I have to live here. And all the, it's just ridiculously low money. And by the time, you know, you've traveled there and played, it's eight or nine hours and you're walking out with 40 or 50 euros. And don't get me wrong, as a young guy, had I not done the cream thing, I would have still gone to Ibiza, I'm sure. I would have flyed beaches. I would have done whatever I could to get those gigs. And, and of course, Ibiza is a launching pad. And, and, and that's just the nature of the beast, you know. So I'm not putting the blame on Ibiza for that. You know, I've gone there with my eyes wide open and realised this is a great base for me. It's home. But it's never going to be where I'm going to earn my income from, as it were. Yeah. You know, it is just amazing for everything else that I do. It's, it gives me so much creativity. Um, I get to see everybody I need to see passing through. And yeah, it's a great place to launch out to other spots. Yeah. But I do think there is room for, as you say, some esoteric, yeah. something regular. And, and if it goes into grows into something bigger, then great. If not, it's just a party for people into good music. Well, yeah, I can't wait to go to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, obviously it gives you the flexibility to do a kind of an eight-hour African set. Um, where would you say your sweet spot for genre and taste is right now? Yeah, it's a difficult one. Is it just everything? Yeah, because given the opportunity, I would play from sunset till sunrise. Mm. And through that, I can go through many genres. So I've set up a new label called Through God's Own Eyes. So that was a label I kind of started in. Well, it wasn't a label, actually. It was a party I started in Bali with um, Dea, who's who's now playing at the um, in Croatia for the Deck Mental Selectors. He's a prolific producer. He's Indonesian from Jakarta. He's got an amazing record store stroke listening space in Potato Head in Bali. He's setting up a studio with Potato Head. Yeah, he's, he's, he's going to be... Um, kind of one to watch he already, already is 
So we, me and him started doing a couple of small parties in a, in a, a venue in Bali called Co, which had a function one. Unfortunately, it was way ahead of its time and it just didn't work and that closed down. And then I started it in another little venue. But all, all the time I wanted to, to set up a label. And then I moved back to, I moved to Singapore um, and eventually back here. And I, I, I just thought I'm going to start the label because people were starting to pigeonhole me as this very chilled out Balearic DJ, which, which is, because living in Bali, that's all I was doing. And it was yeah. great. You know, I was doing these amazing sunsets, fortunate enough to play nice long sets. But every so often I do like to get into a club and play heads down music you know yeah so i thought through god's own eyes so first ep was a a guy called lamano who's a guy from preston italian heritage his family-owned restaurants he's actually involved in that scene and i met him in croatia just chatting he's like look you know i make music i'd love your opinion and he sent me this load of tracks and i was like i'll put these out do this this and this we'll do it and i'll get remixes done so i got manpower jeff to remix the first EP. The second EP's just come out, which was by a young guy called Dan Wainwright, who I'd met in an after party in Manchester years ago. This He's super cosmic. And he'd done a track and give it to Sean Johnston from Alphas, and he'd been playing it. So it was only natural we asked Sean mm. to remix it. And he, Sean was lovely. He goes, look, I'll just do it anyway. And he remixed it. I was like, well, what are your conditions? What do we pay? No, no, I'm just going to do it, which is lovely. I've got a project that's coming out next, which is... Uh, old 80s Australian popish band but there was a dub on the B-side um, which I've managed to get my hands on and I've Weatherall's remixed that for me Amazing. so that's ready to go I've got a, uh, a project that Ron Trent did for me a while ago um, some unreleased mixes of a big another project that's ready to go so this is a more clubbier stuff mm-hmm. so, the, so basically the whole idea of me being able to DJ from sunset to sunrise is something I would love to do, you know, I'd love to do a 12 hour set, you know. So musically and genres, I've waffled a bit there and gone around the houses, but yes, it's eclectic, you know, it's, I'm comfortable, you know, starting off with a slower, you know, more chilled, Balearic, Mm -hmm. but I'm happy to take that through, you know, house, techno, you know, Italo, whatever works really, you know, it's, again, it goes back to that, I'm frustrated by music. You know, there's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough out, you know, years in my lifetime to discover it all. And the same with DJing. You know, I get booked for two-hour sets, and it really disappoints me. I just, you know, I'm not even warmed up. Yeah. You know, it's more about building something. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I certainly there's certain styles I'll steer away from, but you know, in general, I'm open to anything. You know, um, and that's you know that that's the great thing about music. You know, and I think you you'd be quite foolish to limit yourself to particular genres and styles of course we go down you know I'll get lost for months in weird jazz or you know folk music or folktronica eventually I come around it's like right okay yeah well as you mentioned living in Bali um yeah. and we um we have done a podcast with John Trencher. From... yes I've been booking John for Bali for quite a few years have you <laughs> and he talks about he talked about traveling out there yeah. and uh, how kind of that Southeast Asia market area um yeah is kind of a new frontier in terms of totally. music. Yeah, so I went many years ago. I've been considering making a move. I was running. I was involved in a publishing business, quite successful publishing business, music publishing. But it got to the point where I wasn't. I wasn't saying a dark place, but I was in a place where things weren't right. Um, I needed a change, and I'd gone. Uh, somebody used to book me from Australia to, to play in Australia. Got back in touch through the through Facebook and said, "Oh, you know." I'm looking after a venue called Karma Kandara 
in Bali, we do these stay and play trips. You come over, pay for your own flight, but we'll put you in this amazing luxury villa. And they are amazing. You get food and beverage, you do a few sunsets. So I went over and did that. Another good friend of mine, Josh, who's been going there for years, hooked me up another little gig. Um, and and there's, there was a small community out there of expats already. Um, this is about five or six years ago. And I literally, within two weeks being there, I fell in love with Bali. And I was like, right, I went back into to, to meet my partners. I said, oh, I need a meeting. I'm 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 out. I'm gonna I wanna sell my shares. I know how the business is going and I know we need extra cash injection and I know blah blah blah. And they were like, Okay, well what do you want? I told them, Okay, we'll do the deal. And then I moved out there in like the February, yeah, about five years ago. And I couldn't work for six months because I wasn't legal, so it you know, I I got my paperwork in order. And in the meantime, kind of all the, the key venues, Potato Head, Kudatar, Karma Kandara, they all kind of got word I was there and all invited me in to meet. And then, um, yeah, I ended up doing my first year there. I was literally some days, three gigs a day. Wow. I was just literally on a scooter, razzing around the island playing because I wanted to understand what the island was about. And there was hardly any internationals coming in then. You may be one or two a month. Now there's like three a night, you know. Yeah. And I ended up kind of potato head. I gravitate to them as because there was a guy called Dan Mitchell. So Dan Mitchell is a Geordie. He had a place called LNCC. Do you remember yeah. LNCC in yeah. London? So he was involved in that. He married a, a girl. She was from Indonesia. But I think she was studying here. They ended up back in Asia. And he ended up becoming the creative director for Potato Head in Bali. He's now, I think, creative director for the whole company. Um, so as he joined, he brought his friend over, Johnny Nash. So Johnny Nash became the kind of new music director. And then they needed somebody to help Johnny. So they invited me in and I'd already been DJing there to help Johnny. Johnny, after a year, decided it wasn't for him. You know, he wanted to, he hadn't made any music in a year. So I stepped into his role and we started booking all sorts of people, you know, young Marco, Harvey. I mean, Harvey's a resident there now. They're building the nightclub for Harvey out there. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, and it was great. So we were doing these sundown circle parties and we invited Giles over to play. And I warmed up for him. And then Dea went on after. And Giles... You know, after the gig, we were just sat drinking a few drinks and Dea was playing. He's like, who is this guy? I was like, this is Dea, he's local. I feel I've never heard any of this music. It's incredible. So let's let's go and have a look through his record box. And we did that. And then next day, I'm in the office with the whole team having our kind of debrief. And I just have my laptop on and Giles has wrote this amazing message saying the best gig I've been to in a long time. You know, Johnny Nash and Phil Cooper in there looking after things. And this DJ called Dea, the, and he said, the best DJ I've heard in 10 years. Wow. So good, I'm going to invite Potato Head to host a stage at Worldwide Festival. And I'm just like, fucking <laughs> hell. So next thing we know, we've put a tour. We, we, we're the first Indonesian club brand yeah. to, I guess, to tour. So we did Ibiza, we played at Pikes. We did Brilliant Corners here in London. We did Hong Kong, Singapore. We did Worldwide Festival. And we did the Garden Festival. And that was me, Dea, and Johnny, you know. Yeah. And it was... It was great and interesting times, and they are the true. We 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 christened it Barley Eric. <laughs> See what we did there. So they they have got um, Eric Duncan's now living out there, playing as a resident. They've got Pete Herberts, the new musical director, there now. They've really set the stall out, and all the other venues musically don't really come close. Mm-hmm. Karma Kandara, because I ended up becoming the musical director there. I wrote their music brief, and it was very much a Balearic thing based around John because John is one of the solid residents John Satrincha mm. at that place and he knows the owner and the owner loves what he does so I'm like guys this is our nucleus yeah this is our music you know it's it's chilled it's it's eclectic it's not deep house or that what do they call panpipe bloody shaman music which 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 was getting played in a lot of venues mm-hmm. you know and I'm like look at your guests here there's 60 year old Australian couple who've come on their wedding anniversary you know, John plays familiar, not commercial music, you know, and it's it's stuff you can drift in and out of, not that's being rammed down your throat. And that was the problem that was happening in not just in Karma Kandara, it was happening in a lot of venues and a lot of, you know, and not even just in Bali. Lots of venues around the world don't get music right. It's always the last thing, yeah. which is annoying. You know, I walk into an amazing restaurant, I think I'm a great night, and that music's either too loud or too abrasive. I'm like... I'll turn around. I'll go. And, I'll go and sit in a you know in a beach hut with a cold beer if the music's right. Yeah, it's, an, it's sometimes an afterthought, isn't it? it yes, be built yes. around it. It should be. You know, it's you know your stimuluses are sight and sound. If you walk in and the venue looks great and it sounds amazing, that's it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Bali is great, and as you say, it's 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 growing fast. In in the five years I was there, it went from you know I say. A handful of internationals a month to pretty much three times and three different internationals a night now in all these different venues wow. and it's a, it, it was always a place where if you were touring Asia you could go and you could get a stay and play you could get a nice villa you you know you get your food and beverage you do a few sunsets but, but that, you know that's changed now agents have got onto the fact that these you know Omnia have opened there and they're that Vegas outfit and they've built this huge cliff top um, venue the most amazing sound system musically it's not what I'm into but they're doing 2,000 people a day. Yeah. It's so it's changed. And, yeah. uh, you know, musically, everybody's stepped their game up. 
and it's a great landing pad now. So you you know you go from there into Perth, and you can do the rest of Oz, and yeah. So I'm actually doing some work with an agency based in the UK. Though Simon who runs it lives in Ibiza, Fina, and they book people like Crazy P and uh, Alfredo and stuff. So I'm helping them with the Asia stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah there's definitely a huge demand for it now yeah that's amazing um not even southeast asia you travel all over the world dj i saw like a few weeks ago or last week you're in the faroe Faroe islands Islands. (laughs) yeah so that's yeah that was amazing um and they i actually have been contacted they've told me to pencil in for next year they want me to do an extended set i did two hours and i said after i finished i love this but i i want to go on for 10 hours yeah so that was great. So that came about, um, I went back to Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts as a mature student um, in my mid-30s. And there was a, a guy there called Fred, who, again, mature student, he'd been working in the city, but was always a lover of music. Got out of the whole city thing, moved to Liverpool. He's actually from, I think, Devon originally. But anyway, he, he was a hip-hop DJ, and we were good mates and stuff. And then he ended up going out with uh, an amazing vocalist from the Faroe Islands, but she was studying in Liverpool and they eventually ended up back there. He's built this amazing house with a recording studio and he's got involved in a thing called G Festival. And when I was booking over in Karma Kandara, they were we were in contact and they were planning to come to Asia to do some sightseeing. I said, well, look, do you want to come and perform? So his missus, that she's, she does huge tracks with people like Dead Mouse and everything and she's been Grammy nominated. Her name eludes me at the moment, but I will remember and I'll, I'll send you if I don't remember at the end of this interview. They came over, she performed, they got a lovely stay and play trip out of it and it was at a time where they said it was much needed because they'd been working really hard building the house, getting this festival. The festival's been running years, but they kind of, he took it over and made some quite drastic changes. So, you know, that was it, you know, and a few years later he's like when you come back to this side of the world, I'll bring you over to G-Fest. It's like, great. So I went over. Because there's not enough hotels, you stay with a family, so that you stay in a host house, which was amazing. I stayed with, I think, a woman with four kids, quite a big house, big pots of food on the go, and really lively. And then they had day trips for all delegates, press, artists, if they wanted, and they took us to some amazing places around the island to see little villages and to their major town. And they took us to... A record shop that's been there 50 years wow but the great thing about this is it's a record shop but it's also a record label and they look after all faroese music and over 50 years they've released about 700 albums and it's only faroese music they sell in that shop no and it's incredible and the guy christian black he's not i think he's norwegian or icelandic originally but he came over met his wife who's american who was there they fell in love and they've, they've just stayed there um and it was amazing. I bought some vinyl. It's all vinyl. Mm-hmm. So I bought some, some local music. And, I, and then later on, on part of the tour, we went to Christian's house. And he, was, he played a short piece on the piano, which I've recorded. And it's beautiful. And I've now spoke to him. And I'm going to license that piece of music. And I'm going to get Chris Coco to rework it into this beautiful sunset track. So nice. that was amazing for that alone. And then the gig was... Yeah, it was in, um, so, so it's, it's this cove area and they've got the main stage down one end and then further up the cove there's an old fish canning factory and the roof had come off and it's been abandoned for years but they turn it into this this kind of electronic music, you know, club space and it was really good. I mean, the sound, you know, they bring all the sound system in from Norway, the staging, everything and it's really, really professional, well put together and a great experience because... You know, somewhere I'd never have thought of going. No, I and mean, it's a beautiful place. Yeah, really beautiful. Um, 
So, so yeah. what was the crowd like there? Was it people local to the island? Yeah, or, pretty yeah. much. Some people flew in from Copenhagen, but it's mainly local. So the thing is there, their ancestry comes from Viking farmers. So it was Vikings who kind of gone looking for a quiet life. And the Irish. So they're very musical. Uh, everybody can sing or play an instrument. But instruments didn't arrive till quite late in their history. So everybody was mainly singers, folk singers, you know, a cappella groups and... So to them, music is part of their heritage, you know, totally. So the house I was staying in, they had a piano, there was guitars everywhere, and all the, the boys all played and the girls sang. And and it's just, yeah, very much part of what they do. Um, and it was, yeah, it, everybody travels, and there's a huge campsite, and the young, the young kids all camp out. And, yeah, it was great. It was really good. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I went a little unprepared for the weather, you know, I flew straight from Ibiza in shorts and t-shirt, <laughs> and my luggage didn't arrive till the day after. That got left in Barcelona somewhere. But it, I mean, it wasn't cold; it's just damp. Yeah. Uh, so they lent, you know, somebody lent me a raincoat, and yeah. But I, yeah, I'm going to go back next year and do a, a longer set. And obviously, because I can plan now, I'll probably do Copenhagen, Norway, and maybe try in Iceland as well, and do a little tour while I'm over. Incredible. Yeah, but it was meant- great. You mentioned the Faroese record shop that you ended up in. Do you find wherever you are in the world, you're kind of drawn to these places of vinyl? Always do a Google search, just on the off chance. And that's what I did with this one. It's called Tittle, T-U-T-L. And I just threw it in. And then I contacted Christian. but And he was like, well, you know, if you're here for the thing, if you're here for the festival, we're doing a, they're going to bring a load of people down. Because the scene is so small, any aspect of the scene there, they all help each other. So this was... This was all set up so we could go and experience it. But my plan was to go there anyway. But yeah, wherever I go, I either speak to some hardcore diggers I know, that little network, you know, I'm going here. So I'm speaking to Steve from Brighton, who uh, he runs the Balearic, B-A-O-L or something, Balearic, something of love, uh, nights. And he he's wrote books about digging. He's kind of an authority and he's got like this huge record collection and... So I, when I go to the States, you know, because New York's kind of been done now, mm. he's he said, you know, you've got to go to Philadelphia. There's still great digging, and it's like an hour and a half on the train. So he's going to dig out a load of notes and stuff for me. Um, I've got a few people I know over in Detroit who are going to take me out digging there. Yeah, it's always always part and parcel of wherever I go. Um, sometimes it's a bit annoying because, you know, you could be out doing sightseeing, as my girlfriend would say, but I'm stuck in a... <laughs> Stuck in a record shop, so. Well, it's a passion, isn't it? Why yeah, not? exactly. Yeah, and that discovery as well, you know, finding things that you never find anywhere mm. else in the world in just that one place. Well, it's sometimes. regional stuff. Yeah. You know, you pick up records that were pressed, like everywhere, people pressed a couple hundred copies mm. and they never went further than, you know, that city sometimes. You know, I used to go digging a lot in South Africa many years ago to Joburg, an incredible, incredible place that, you know, once they made that switch from vinyl to CD, the vinyl plants just got rid of everything. So I went to, there was a guy, an Indian guy who had uh, a load of haberdashery stores. He had about seven of them in Joburg and they all sold everything from, you know, nails to tractor parts. But on each floor he had vinyl. So like he had one floor that was, one of his stores was just all disco. One was all soul, one was all jazz. I only ever got to the disco one. Um, and this is going back to the, must have been about 94, 95. And I just bought all these albums for like 50p each. And a friend of mine worked for DHL and I shipped them all back. And they were all 20, 30 quid albums back then, you know. Yeah, yeah it's great. And that's, again, you know, just having got there and I spoke, this was pre-sort pre, pre sort of MySpace internet days, really. Mm. And just 
going off and finding all the other collectors and getting them to take me there. Yeah. yeah, and the record label you run, you've mentioned it a few times, New Northern Soul, it's, yeah. um, you know, it sets itself out as it's not a soul music label, it's for music with soul. Yes. Is there a vinyl-only policy with that? How do you feel in terms of your releasing so it, it to keep was, this format yeah, alive? It was pretty much vinyl-only, and it's only a decision I made recently. I'm actually, because I, I, I looked at all the figures and I sat down and just worked out, you know, over the years what I've spent and stuff. And because the music I put out is timeless, over time it sells through. Mm-hmm. But there's only so many releases I can fund before I run out of money. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So what I've decided is certain key releases will be will be vinyl. So for next year, there's a couple planned already. But generally, I'm going to do digital only because I'm actually seeing the numbers coming in now. They're not huge, but there's actually money money coming in from streaming and digital. So I'm going to do this, like this year I did a summer sampler or summer selections EP and I took a track from the three EPs I'm releasing digitally over the summer. So it's three different artists. So a lot of these, and they're, some of them are kind of new developing artists. So for them, it's, they just want their music on vinyl. And unfortunately, I can't guarantee putting their full EP on vinyl. But if I do the sampler, it, it, it kind of, you know, I have to appeal to the vinyl heads. So I'll sell a couple of hundred of those. But actually... More and more people I'm appealing to are the people who just want to listen to Spotify playlists or and just on a numbers game, over time they're the people that are going to bring money into the label that enables a label to continue. So I'm going to not do everything on vinyl moving forward. Um, it'll be a balance of digital and vinyl. But of course, you know, never say never on things like that, you know, I'm, because I've noticed the sales are starting to sneak up again. So if I can get back to a point where they're, they're, they're breaking even initially, then I'll probably you know start switching back to everything on vinyl. Yeah. Knows. But yeah, it's you know I love vinyl. I collect it myself. But actually, the, the majority of people they just want to listen to nice music, and for them it's Spotify. Yeah. And if I can curate, present that to them, and they don't even have to look elsewhere, then you know if I can get a you know a million of those people, and there are a million of those people out there easily. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas on the record buying stuff, you know sometimes I've sold. A thousand copies but on average it's a couple of hundred these days yeah. you know and what's and it, your preference in terms of djing um different i mean i love vinyl and these weekend you know i'm playing tomorrow vinyl i played last night vinyl but it's just you know that traveling through from you know the, the journey yesterday was it was like torture humping crates of vinyl around um i don't have a preference really you know vinyl is much more a sociable way of djing especially if there's a few of you on the same bill because you put your box down and you open it up then you just go and look in your mate's box um and i love the format i love the sound you know it and people say it doesn't sound better yes it does i've got a beautiful audio file system at home and i play vinyl on that or digital and the vinyl sounds totally different but that's for me personally at home in a club it doesn't matter um so no real preference really i say um it's about the shared experience of music for me in a club um, and how i present that you know if if i have to play a piece of vinyl and a few people really appreciate that great but it's that you know for me it's it it doesn't really make any difference yeah, yeah. i just i do enjoy because i'm not doing if i was doing this week in week out and i'm to cart those records around i'd hate it i'm sure but it's only once or twice a year i do this so. yeah yeah and you also run the Cat label on Cat Forty Five. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did do. That's yeah. kind of that's kind of not happening anymore. It got to the point because because that was almost kind of re-edits and rediscovering. Yeah. You know, into how important do you think it is to keep some of those 
forgotten classics to revive them in a way or should it always be we should be looking forward no no I mean I I always have a saying it's DJing is like driving you always have to look backwards before you can move forwards you do you have to you know you have to in a car of course if you're pulling out you've got to check there's nothing coming but with music always look backwards give because you know it gives you an understanding of that and I think as a DJ you become much more capable as a DJ if you understand the history and stuff that whole thing with Cat started it started because we had a label called Sick Trumpet which was a broken beat label um, and we were based in Liverpool but obviously Goya Goya was West London they were the distributors they were involved in co-op and we were putting out broken beat you know and I did a track called Conundrum with Tim Landslide who was part of Hospital Records he was a drummer and he wrote this amazing track and Phil Asher remixed it because um, a long story short Phil Asher had seen me play a festival and I was playing boogie on an outdoor stage at a festival and he somehow got my home number and called me and he's like nobody does that you know I was out with loads of Orin and all the Bugs Boys and we were wandering around and we heard and we looked up and there was this guy playing boogie to a packed stage in a festival hats off to you and me being the opportunist like brilliant would you do a remix for me and he's like yeah Okay, so I sent him this track. He did this amazing track. And it got through to, what's his name? The American DJ who did all the edits. Danny Crivet. Danny Crivet. And Danny did an edit of Phil Ash's mix. And it's, this got back to me. I was like, fuck. So this was, you know, I need his email. And I emailed him several times and he never, ever got back to me. So I was like, well, I'm going to put this out as a bootleg. On, so we set up Cat Records to bootleg this record. And many years later, well, not many years later, I think about 18 months later, I heard through somebody that Danny was like, you know, he wants to get paid for that. I was just like, I tried to contact him. And the, what he was asking, I was just like, there's no way we can afford to pay that, you know. But that's how the label started. And it was great for a while because we were, we were quite clever. We, we were looking at old artwork and, and getting that remixed. So our sleeve, our artwork was based on old records. But it got to the point where everybody started doing edits it became difficult because people were getting, because these weren't cleared. They were all, for want of a better word, bootlegs. And it just became tougher and tougher because people were coming down hard on these things. And and I actually always said I would happily stand up and defend what I was doing because I was introducing a lot of people to stuff that had been forgotten about. I wasn't making any money. It was paying for itself. And in fact, I go back through my record collection and I got all those loft classics and things like that which were bootlegs they were records you couldn't get but somebody's like well look let's put them all on these amazing EPs and and I remember that's how I discovered a lot of that music and it for me it just got to the point where there was no creativity from my side running that label because the the idea for the artwork would come from somewhere else the music was somebody else's and I was just sent you know just putting this into a file, sending it down to the guys. They were manufacturing, sending them out. And it's like, do you know what? It's no fun. It's getting tougher. So we just, we've not, we've not stopped it. We've just kind of put it on a hold. But to be honest, I don't think we'll, we'll do anything yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, but New Northern Soul was something I was running and that's totally, you know, from, it, everything is legit. It's all paid, you know, artists are paid, MCPS are paid, PRS are paid. The artwork is always original and I work closely with the artists on that and I've got an amazing designer I've worked with for 20 odd years who's done my flyers, all my label artwork for everything and it's weird because I literally have an idea, I sketch it and I write some notes and I send it to him and he nails it and that, those kind of relationships are quite hard to have. Yeah. So yeah. I'll continue working with him. 
And yeah, and I just find it, you know, it, it's a lot more rewarding doing that. It does certainly, you know, some of the releases don't sell as much. You know, the cat stuff sold quite well. Mm. As I say, enough that we didn't lose money. And New Northern Soul, as I say, for many years was my expensive hobby. It was kind of, I think it probably owes me quite a few money, a few quid over the years. But it's it's coming to a point where actually things are breaking even, making money. And the bigger picture is easier to see now. Yeah, and it's completely multi-genre, that label. It covers it. Yeah, um, I mean, yes, I've put jazz out on there. I've done remixes, digital packages of kind of quite dark music. In fact, I'm I'm doing a, a digital-only release for the winter called Winter Warmers Volume 1, and I'm just going through the catalogue and digging out tracks that were perhaps missed that actually don't... They're not summer tracks. They're, they're colder, darker, but still organic. So I'm putting together 12 tracks. It'll just, you know, be digital and Spotify. But it's just another way of introducing the the label to a slightly different audience, perhaps. And just keeps things fresh. Because, you know, as much as I listen to music, I'll buy albums and there'll be tracks on there I'll dismiss. And then they're presented to me years later. I'll hear, oh, this is amazing. What's it? Oh, this is I've got this. (laughs) Just it's all about context, right? Yeah. So that's the thing I've learned with the label is, you, you know, I have the rights for this music for a long time and there's no reason why I can't reformat repackage get it out there it keeps everything fresh you know it leads to extra sales it might put some light onto an artist that people have forgotten about so that's yeah that'll come out through the winter um, yeah. but yeah as you say multi-genres are kind of leaning more towards a, a sunset sound but i've been sent some amazing stuff over the last few weeks that is still kind of down tempo-y chilled out but with a different edge it's not you know not just nice music for sunsets now it's full listening albums and and things like that great so uh, your upcoming gigs what's in the kind on the sticker in the bag for those crikey (laughs) you know you've got like a festival you've it sounds like you've got different kind of types of gigs yeah the festival because i'm playing before raymang will be kind of that that more italo uh, sort of Balearic beat style not high bpm but kind of quite chuggy head down um, tougher stuff. The, the gig tomorrow at the Dartmouth Arms will be, it's a vinyl only session, which I'm looking forward to, and they've got a nice system there. Um, everything, you know, jazz, ambient, bit of disco, just across the board. Um, yeah, I mean, say there's no real, you know, I can't, you know, there's no real, I don't go there with that, like, I'm going to have to play that, you know, I just go and see how it goes. Yeah. But I'd say going back to the Ibiza thing, I'm, I, once I sit down with the guy I'm hopefully going to be setting this up with, we will, I guess we'll write a bit of a music brief for ourselves. You know, this is who we are because it helps because we're in a place that's under the microscope when it comes to music Ibiza. Unless you set your stall out, you you kind of just, you'll just become like everybody else, I guess, in the eyes of most people. But I think from the start, we're going to be quite strong with that. And it will be energetic. I would guess something like what Scruff does, really. You know, I mean, he for me is the the master of multi-genre. Um, the eight but, hour set <laughs> yeah and it's just you can take you everywhere yeah and i think that's that's needed you know i think people want those journeys you know equally there are people who want to go and listen to eight hours of that really flat sort of uh shamanic house music you know but um i think we're going to be the antithesis of that you yeah know? we're going to set our stall out i hope to do something completely different Amazing. but yeah but not limiting ourselves to you know if we want to throw a techno track in we will you know yeah. it's all about context i yeah. guess yeah. yeah, I can't. Yeah. I, I'm really excited. That sounds well. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. I say I've got to say, get back and make sure. Well, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's going to get involved, you know. Um, and I think it's because he's again younger. It needs that balance, you know. I, I'm no spring chicken when it comes to clubs, but I think 
you know, what I'm seeing now on dance floors is the young and the older crowds mixing happily, listening to great music. And I, and Ibiza's always been about that, so I don't see a problem with that happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so hopefully it leads us nicely on to um, what kind of music we might expect to hear at um, uh, that potential yeah. event you're going to put on. You've been kind enough, what we do at House Culture is uh, we're putting together the perfect playlist in inverted okay. commas on Spotify. We try and get all of our guests to choose five tracks. That yes. A part of a different theme um i know it's really difficult to um nail you down to one specifically but you've been kind enough to kind of come back to us and and provide us with these five tracks um so what's going to go in there um the track that originally got you into dance music um you've said cc rogers someday yes uh obviously it's beautiful beautiful yes. piano led yes. tune sampled to high heaven yes um, yeah yeah for sure what contextually when you uh, when you think about that tune where does it put you so that that there was an amazing i think it was a radio one interview or a special with anthony wilson and it was talked about manchester and i've still got it somewhere on a cassette and anthony wilson said this, he, before I even heard it, it was like, you know, it was a similar interview. And they said, you know, what is your end of night track? We play this at the end of the, every night in the Hacienda. It's the track that everybody knows to fuck off and get their jackets and go home. And I heard it and it was, I just, yeah, it blew my mind. And it, it'd been out, I think it's from about eight, it's, it's quite an old track. And then I was just immediately went to hunt it down. And I, 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 I didn't hear it when it first came out. I heard it a bit later. And I managed to track a mint copy down off a DJ called Steve Williams, who was playing in Manchester and stuff from the mid-80s. I don't think he's involved in music now. And I paid, back then I paid about 50 quid for that record. It's probably not worth it actually, it's been read, but it's an original mint copy. Amazing, sealed beautiful record but that was kind of yeah that was the one that kind of summed up everything I was hearing because yeah. it was positive you know it's organic yeah and I still stand by that I mean you can play that now and it still gets a great reaction yeah it still sounds so fresh yeah amazing record yeah um and we ask for a floor filler I'm gonna really struggle with the pronunciation like KID it's Hupendi Musiki Wangu which yeah. is you don't <laughs> like my music yeah I, I can't even pronounce it Hi, I think it's it's actually pronounced hype Hypendu or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's just this weird yeah, it kind of you can you can I think switch styles using that track. And it's I don't know, there's just an edge even though you haven't heard it before, it, it's familiar mm. without being obvious. Yeah, and it's I mean I don't think it's that you know I mean I, I I've played that to people like, Oh I've never heard this before. But to me, I mean I guess it's just the circles I mix and it's kind of a standard yeah, record that, you know. We've listened to and there was actually a night in Stoke ran by and again my, my brain's fried at the moment female DJ again it'll come to me based I think she's Manchester Stoke she had a night called that yeah because of that track yeah and it was yeah and I think people like Kelvin Andrews would hang out there and yeah yeah great record yeah and like you've described it like a switch track I do um, love those kind of tracks I remember hearing an interview with Sister Bliss and she was talking about a warm up tune or whatever and it's that one that when you're stood at the bar and you hear and it's like that track I'm going to move to the dance floor now yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. well that's and that's it and Blissy she's from that you know that older school where you know as a warm up DJ your job was because these venues made their money from the bar sales you know not the fact that you were a superstar DJ so your job was to get people in you know, warm them up so they'd be spending money at the bar and then it was that that switch where now it's time they come to the dance yeah, floor yeah, yeah. perfect um the sunsetter obviously 
you're a veteran of many many yeah. sunsets um but yeah, a wonder cover of the Beatles, um, Jose Feliciano. Feliciano, yeah. Feliciano, yeah. I love her. Br- brilliant record. Um, he's a g- great guitarist. Done loads of stuff and he's done Relight My Fire, all sorts of stuff. I mean, he's certainly not underground, but it's just a great record. And you play that and I played it last night, actually, at this tiny little place called Christ Behind. I'll, again, it'll come to me. But the reason I was down last night was to play. It was a little vinyl setup. And I played there, and the lad who booked me is a you know he's a young guy. He's actually DJing the breakfast show on NTS this morning, Macca. So he steps in for um, Mr. Bones when he's not playing, and Macca hadn't heard it, and he's kind of he's a, he's just turned thirty, so it's always lovely when you play that, and it's like this is Jose Feliciano, and some people will know him, some people won't, but he's got such a massive back catalogue. Yeah. But that is yeah, just a beautiful record. But then but then you ask me if I, you know, that might change again next week. Yeah, it's di- these they're they're always difficult questions when it's like choose one record, yeah. you know. Well you know, I mean you've got your Spotify thing, as you said, you listen to I mean I I, I put a Spotify thing and it's there's just so much and I'm just cramming it in there and it these lists can get out of hand, you yeah. know. Because it's just, I say, I'm I'm always learning about music, even though I have, you know, quite good knowledge. I'll walk into somewhere tomorrow and hear something by, and it'll be some young guy playing it, or a young girl, you know, it's like, what's this? Oh, this is a record from the 70s, it's a Japanese artist. I'm like, wow, head blown, you know. (laughs) Um, And a tearjerker, what one kind of fills you with emotion? Um, What Colour Is Love? Oh, Terry Callier, yeah. Yeah. My all-time favourite album, hands down. I was lucky enough, when I lived in Chester and had my record shop, uh, Global Grooves, that was the story I was coming to. I, though I was working there, I ended up buying the shop. The guys wanted to go and do restaurants and bars, so they sold the shop to me. I was writing a music column for the Chester Chronicle, and they rang me and said, oh, there's an artist playing called Terry Callier at a little venue. And Terry, I'd never heard of this guy. So Terry Callier was a, a folk singer, I think 60s and 70s, and typically wasn't earning enough money to support his family. He got into computer programming, became a computer programmer, and, and, and gave up the singing. And through Dr. Bob Jones, who's an English, he's, I mean, he's been DJing, crikey, 50, 60 years. Amazing guy, lives on the South Coast. Uh, he was playing his music, and I think Mr. Bongo, or maybe, I think it was Mr. Bongo, reissued some of the albums. And obviously that caused a bit of a resurgence. So Terry was invited to the UK to do this tour, and Bob Jones was DJing before him. So I was like, well, I've never heard of Terry Kelly, but I know Bob Jones, so I'll go and see him DJ, that'd be brilliant. So I went down with a view to reviewing it, and Bob played, and then... The, he finished and he introduced this guy and, and Terry Callie's little old black guy shuffles on with this stool. He puts a stool down, he sits up, picks his guitar up, shuts his eyes and proceeds to sing. And he goes through the whole, pretty much the whole What Colour Is Love album. And I had a moment I've never, you know, my legs were buckling. I was just like, whoa. And I went home and, I, you know, the internet sales were happening then. And I found this album, What Colour Is Love? And I bought it on CD and I literally listen to it from start to finish as soon as it finished play again and I did that for about five days it blew my mind Um, it is it's a full album it's incredible and What Colour Is Love is you know is the title track beautiful and then over the years I was lucky enough to go and see Terry Calliwright when when Massive Attack curated the South Bank Mm -hmm. I was I was there for that yeah and it's just it's the the album If, if if I could do one thing in this world which would fix all world's problems, it would be remove all religious books from hotels and every institution and put a color, copy of that album and Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions albums in its place and that would fix all the problems. That is amazing, yeah, yeah. totally agree. I totally believe it, you know, yeah. I've, a lot of friends have had babies over the years and I've just sent that album or the Stevie Wonder's Inner Vision album 
with a little note saying, you know, this this format will probably be non-existent when you're old enough to understand it. But, you know, the these will answer all your problems. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, and one more, the last tune, uh, completely opposite end of the spectrum, something that's got a proper Detroit vibe. You said soulful and uplifting. It's galaxy to galaxy, yeah. high-tech jazz. Yeah, just, you know, techno was soulful, swinging music, you know, that... I was lucky enough years ago to to play with um, so it was Juan Atkins, De- Derek May, and who's the other guy? Kevin Saunderson. Kevin Saunderson. So I was playing in Mallorca with Kevin, and we were invited for dinner, and I ended up sitting opposite him, and I was like, from the off, I was like, right, are you somebody who doesn't want to talk about music over your dinner? and just eat quietly or are you quite happy for me to pepper you with questions man you pepper away it's so great I was looking, you asked that up front <laughs> yeah well I was just like you know let's get it out of the way I don't yeah. want him to feel uncomfortable you know so he just and I just drilled him oh man what about this Who, you know blah blah and he said look we grew up we were kids listening to Motown and the sounds of car pressing plants with soulful music and this this sound you know so that's how techno happens you know but it still had soul in it and that to me is you know the, the epitome of detroit you know it is it's a beautiful record and it is yeah it's it's not you know industrial techno at all it's it's soulful and yeah and so i'm very excited to be going to detroit in in september um it's going to do the motown tour i believe with appointments you can go to underground resistances um because they had a distribution center as well because they used to distribute all the, the techno music and press it and and I believe they, they've gone on to some quite hard times, but because of digital. Um, but I'd like to go and see if that's still possible to go and look at. And I think Moody Man has a, a museum to prints there, the Purple House. So I'm going to try and check that out. But yeah, and I'm just going to see, you know, a city that's inspired me, not just through techno, but through, you know, Motown. I did my, as a mature student, I did my dissertation on Barry Gordy and his business model. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited about going. Real pilgrimage. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Some, you know, it's always been on the cards. I've wanted to do it, and I thought, right, I'm going to do it. And I'm, I'm actually going from New York to Detroit on a Greyhound bus overnight, you know, going to do it that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to stay in this area where the Motown Museum is, because obviously it's, it's huge. I mean, I was looking at, because I love walking around, but I was just looking, you know, I wanted to go f- to the Contemporary Art Museum from where I'm staying, and it's like a three-hour walk. I'm like, fuck, this is a big city, you know. <laughs> So yeah, there won't be much walking going on. I think it, they, uh, my friend who lives there said, "No, mate, it's called the Motown no. Motor City for a reason." But, oh yeah, right, okay, totally, totally. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, this is we've chatted for uh, for ages now. I'm aware that I don't want to run over time, but um, you know, we just have one kind of final question yeah, no in terms problem. of we are house culture. Um, when you look at it as a, as an entity, this house music thing, or just dance music in general as a culture, what how, what's your kind of take on that when you're looking at it how, how does it make you feel i've been fortunate enough to be taken all around the world and met some amazing people being in situations like i was sat in after a party in outside cape town in a township it was a friend called brendan who've actually just got back in touch with after apartheid he was the only one putting on parties for mixed crowds so black and white there was there was very much a black scene there was very much a white scene he cross that so me and Stuart Patterson from Faith would go over and play these amazing parties and one year I was over on my own with Brendan and we'd be we'd playing in a township in a I was playing in like a hut with a deck system and it was just the scene in front of me was like a thousand young kids just going crazy to deep house and then later on 
I ended up in a house of a, of a, a white guy who had kind of quite a prolific studio and he used to get all the kind of township musicians in and help them record. And I was sat with three old guys, probably in their 80s, in their best zoot suits, I mean immaculate. We were drinking Hunter's Gold, which is this amazing side for South Africa, listening to Kwaito music and jazz on this cassette player. And all of us just couldn't speak to each other through traditional language because I don't speak their language but through music we'd connected you know and you consider what these guys had gone through they'd lived through apartheid and the fact that you know music heals you know we were all sat there connected through this in that moment and that's what I think house music does yeah in a nutshell perfect that is a great summation in somewhere thank you excellent to finish thank you no thank you good it's nice to kind of uh, it's, it's like a counselling session <laughs> House Culture Phil, what a guy A true musical nomad Who's travelling the world Not only searching for the perfect sunset But also the perfect tunes to soundtrack it with A big thanks goes out to him for sitting down with us I hope you enjoyed listening to him chat about his career so far and also his plans for that winter Ibiza project. I'm seriously going to take that one as a house culture exclusive. I cannot wait to see how it develops. And don't forget you heard that here first, people. And also, what about the news that Chris Coco will be reworking that piano piece that Phil recorded in the Faroe Islands? I'm sure that will one day find its way onto our perfect playlist as a sunsetter. Speaking of which, you can find all the tracks we discussed on House Culture's Perfect Playlist on Spotify. Please search for that and follow it to keep yourself up to date of all the choices from our podcast guests. Once again, that's House Culture Perfect Playlist. It's on Spotify. I'd also highly recommend Phil's own Spotify playlist called Balearic Chill Out Down Tempo Dub Selections by Fat Phil Cooper. If sunsets are your thing, and come on, who doesn't love one of those? There are currently 36 hours of tunes in there with some future favourites of your own just waiting to be discovered, I'm sure. As I said in the intro though, Phil was between gigs for this interview and his brain was a bit fried as he put it. So he did forget some key names that I thought best to qualify for you guys, as I know you like your extra homework. Annabelle Fraser was the Manchester DJ who runs the Hupendi Muziki Wangu event, the night named after one of Phil's selections for our playlist. The B-A-O-L that Phil couldn't quite remember are the Balearic Assassins of Love, who you can find on Mixcloud, and if you're into your Balearics, these guys should be right up your beach. The Grammy-nominated singer from the Faroe Islands was, of course, Greta Svebo Beck. Once you've done investigating those guys further, please tell everyone about this podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing, telling your friends, and not forgetting to leave us a review. It could always get you a shout-out on a future episode. And then why don't you come follow us to get your daily fix of house culture by hitting up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or by following the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And finally, you can reach out to me, Matt Rouse, directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. House Culture. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.